0: With that being said, will you guys bow with me in prayer this morning? Lord, uh, we're undeserving. That song just speaks so much to us, it is well. This idea that no matter what obstruction gets put in our way, no matter what trial, what struggle, whether that be from within or from without, you have overcome it in Jesus Christ. Lord, as I uh, bring the lesson this morning, I pray that you would speak, that I would decrease, that you might increase, Lord, that your spirit would be the voice that is heard this morning, and that those who are in the body of Christ would have ears to hear, and hearts and minds that can store up and be transformed. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would come to repentance and see you, Lord, as we discuss you this morning, as we discussed one of the most profound names you have in Scripture, and it's in Jesus' precious name, I pray, amen. So today we're finishing up the Name of the Lord series. We've talked about how the Lord is our shepherd, our provider, our banner, our healer, and our peace. That's a lot, and a lot of important stuff. And a lot of important names, titles for God, a lot of things that God's done. And if we wanted to, we could go on for years just talking about different names that the Lord has. Because the Lord is everything. The Lord is our all in all. But this morning, I want to take a look at this name for the Lord, Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord my righteousness or the Lord is my righteousness. And this comes out of Jeremiah 23.6, it says this, In his day Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our Righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. Why is this important? What is righteousness? What does it mean that the Lord is my righteousness? What are we actually talking about today? Because if you're anything like me, I think we hear words like righteousness, we hear a phrase like the Lord is my righteousness, And we will accept that intellectually, but what does that mean? Like righteousness isn't even a word we really use outside of church, right? And in church, we use it in context. So you may have grasped it. Today, I want to look a little deeper at this idea at what righteousness really is and then what it means that the Lord is my righteousness, because I think that in that we're going to find something that we may not have seen. Or for those of us who have seen it, we may be reminded this morning of what that really means and how it's meant to transform the way we live our lives. So there's this guy named Charles Spurgeon. Some of you may have heard of him. He's called the Prince of Preachers. This is a guy who lived in the 1800s. And, uh, you know, long before they had megachurches, he had a megachurch. There was times where he would have 10,000 people attending a sermon. 10,000 in the 1800s. Could you imagine? In fact, one time he was preaching a sermon, and because of the mob mentality, somebody was killed because people were trying to get out of the building because fire was shouted and somebody got killed. And he carried that with him the rest of his life. And it was a tough burden on him to be this well-renowned preacher. And this was a kid who grew up looking for faith. And one day, all the churches in town were closed except for this one he walked by as a 16-year-old. And the church was open. There was about two people in the church. And, the, and one of the deacons of the church had to preach that Sunday because of who made it to church. And it was on that day that he accepted Christ as his Lord for the first time. If that church door had been closed, who knows? But because of that, this 16-year-old boy would soon become a preacher by age 18 and spend his entire life preaching sermons, writing three or four a week and throwing it away Saturday night because he didn't feel like that's what the Lord put on him. And so on June 2nd, 1861, Charles Spurgeon started a sermon on the Lord, my righteousness like this. He said, man by the fall sustained an infinite loss in the matter of righteousness. He suffered the loss of a righteous nature and then twofold the loss of legal righteousness in the sight of God. See, man sinned and therefore was no longer innocent of transgression. Man did not keep the command and he was therefore guilty of a sin of omission. In that which he committed and that which he omitted, his original character for uprightness was completely wrecked. I want you guys to hear that statement. His original character for uprightness was completely wrecked. See, there was this time when Adam, created in the very image of God, looked like God. And because Adam and Eve chose to sin, there was this fall There was this fall, there was this this time when God held them accountable and no longer were Adam and Eve who they were created to be, but they were changed by sin within and without. Their lives would look different. In fact, we know that going to the next generation, their sons would, would have such a beef between them that one kills the other one. This is a big deal because there was this time when Adam and Eve had a character of uprighteousness. They were in the image of God. And because of sin, there was this fall. Isaiah would define man's fallen righteousness in this way. In Isaiah 64, 6, he says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. He says, We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins are swept away. Or as the NASB puts it, All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And really, when you look at the original source text in the Hebrew, that's a better way to say it, garment. But we can use, we use rag in two terms, right? We'll have a a rag like this, but we also could say you're wearing rags. You have dirty, torn up clothing. So Isaiah's point this morning is that the clothing that we're wearing outside has become stained. And so Derek's going to come up if he's around. If not, I'll do it. All right, I'm going to do it. I don't know where Derek went. So this canvas here represents us, right? So there's, this God, there's God on this side, right? God has this perfect, pristine, shiny, white righteousness. This is the standard. This is the standard by which when Isaiah enters into the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because, you know, for the first time in his life, he saw God in his holiness, and then there's us, in because of our sin, because of our transgression, this white canvas has begun to collect some stains. And in our, own, in our own power, we try to do this. We're trying to wipe off this sin. We want to get rid of it. And for some people, this is when they first hear the gospel, they say, look, I can't come to Jesus until I get right with God, Right? But then there's those of us who are in Christ and we say, look, I just need to clean up this mess in my life. God, I'm going to make this bargain. I just need to get this right. And all I got to do is do these certain things. I got to go to church. I got to pray. I got to take the communion. I got to serve others. And I'm going to get right. And as we keep wiping and we keep wiping and we keep wiping, all we're doing is spreading sin's infection. And not only do we, it's our righteousness marred But the thing we're using to wipe it gets dirty. So our good works increasingly get more and more sinful in and of themselves. So that I build up so much in my pride that I've done all these things that not even the work I'm doing anymore is righteous, much less making me more righteous. This morning, both Isaiah and Spurgeon are saying the same thing. We have a sin problem that we are helpless to cure on our own. So I want to look at a few things in scripture that we can learn from this that can really help us understand how do we go from here to here? Because really, this is the only way we're getting into the throne room. Imagine you're going to enter into the throne room of the holy God of Israel, where everything is pristine and clean, and you're full of filth because of sin, and you've been on this long, lifelong journey. And to enter in, as soon as you look, you're like, I can't step across that threshold because I'll ruin what's here. But God says this morning, "I'm your righteousness. I'm your righteousness. You can enter in." I want to look at how that happens this morning. So, the first is the promise of the Messiah. Before we can get to the matter of righteousness, we have to get to the matter of salvation. So, as I read earlier, Jeremiah 23:6 is where this idea of the Lord my righteousness comes but let's jump back a verse. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, what we're learning about is a prophesied Messiah coming. This is the context in which this happens. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, or Jehovah Sidkenu. So, the first thing I want to talk about today is that Jeremiah is outlining the coming of Jesus the Messiah. This is important because we've talked about a lot of different names for God, and some of them have been for God and for Jesus, you know, the Father and the Son. But this morning, this name has to do with the Son. And the first thing we learn from it is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. He's the King of Israel, he is David's righteous branch. And it's so powerful because Jeremiah asserts that the Messiah will be Jehovah, Lord, God. Jesus is God. And we talk about Jesus a lot and we refer to him as the son of God, which is true. But in all reality, Jesus is God, the son. He is God. He was fully God long before he became man. And he was referred to as the word we know from John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And as uh, Seth pointed out earlier, in John 20, 28, Thomas cries out after Jesus' re- resurrection, you are my Lord and my God. Jesus is God, not merely God's son. And that's important today because that means Jesus was the one who was prophesied about to become our righteousness, which means that God is our righteousness. Jesus being God is our righteousness. So we have the righteousness of God. Which is why we'll be able to enter into the throne room, right? Because we share the same righteousness that the Son, the Father, and the Spirit have by faith. So there's this promise of righteousness then. Jesus is God. That's big this morning. God himself became like one of us. And we're going to see why that matters with regard to righteousness this morning. But the second thing we see in there is the promise of righteousness, right? So... This idea of righteousness is important, and in the Hebrew, the word is "sadak." It's the word righteous, and it means to be just, okay? sadak. it means to be just in the Hebrew. Or the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, it's a fun word, right? Uh, Defines it this way. It has to do with the covenantal relationship between God and his people and the appropriate behavior of the covenant partners, Yahweh and Israel, toward each other. So this concept of righteousness is governed then by an agreement that God makes with his people. God routinely enters into covenant with his people through different times in biblical history. So you can't look at righteousness outside of the context of covenant. And I want you guys to think about that this morning. And I'm going to fly through these, but if you want to know more later, come talk to me. But I'm going to fly through eight covenants that we can see. First is the covenant of works, and it's conditional. Um, This is the covenant God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam was supposed to obey all God's commands to earn the right to eat from the tree of life and merit eternal life. Adam rebelled against God and instead earned death and condemnation for himself and his descendants, Genesis 2, 17 through 18, and Genesis 3. Okay, so this is a conditional covenant, right? There's conditions set. God says, you do this and I'll do that, Right? But now we have the second covenant, the covenant of grace, which is unconditional. We first find the unconditional covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, where God promises that a Savior will come to crush the head of the serpent. God doesn't say, as long as you guys do the right thing from now on, I'm going to send a Savior. That's not what God says. He says, there will be a time, there will be a time when one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. God makes an unconditional promise to Adam and Eve. This is the second covenant we see. Third, the the Noah covenant, right? You guys know this one because there's a pretty rainbow that accompanies it. Or at least you should know, every time you see that rainbow, it's a reminder of God to himself. I'm not going to flood the earth again. This, again, is an unconditional promise because we know as soon as Noah gets off the boat, sin starts again. So he floods the world. Peter will say, eight and all were saved in this flood, right? He destroys everything, and as soon as they get out, Noah drinks a little too much. His son is a little... Disturbing. And all of a sudden, this cycle starts again. But God doesn't flood the earth again. Why? Because God made an unconditional covenant between himself and man, saying, I will never flood the earth again. And this will be a sign. Then there's the covenant of Abraham, which again is part of the unconditional covenant of grace. It's more fully revealed. God made this unconditional, permanent covenant with Abraham I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 3 and 15, 5 through 6. See, God begins to stretch forward this promise he made to Adam and Eve through Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to choose you to be the next one. And then comes in the Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant, right? You guys know Moses is given the law. And there's expectation between God and man that man will follow the law in order to obtain righteousness and this was meant to be temporary in nature, and we know that because even the New Testament will say the law was a tutor that leads us to Christ. Paul will say the law could only lead to death, but that Jesus can lead to life. So there's this, there's this works-based righteousness that's being set up through the Mosaic Covenant, but not, never with the intention of this is how you're going to get right, but this is how you're going to know that you can't get right on your own. You're going to look at the fact. Paul will say, I wouldn't even have known I was covetous if it wasn't for the law. So the law is not bad. But this is a conditional covenant. Then God makes a covenant through David in 2 Samuel 7. God promised that he would raise up David's offspring and establish a throne in his kingdom in chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. So we see this continuation of this promise made to Adam, then through Abraham, and now through David, which we saw in Jeremiah, David's righteous branch is going to come. Which leads us into the new covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. The new covenant ushers in the new creation. This is the covenant relationship between the old Mosaic covenant, but also part of the Abrahamic covenant. Because remember, Abraham is before Moses, and Abraham was declared righteous by faith. So it was always God's intention for the new covenant to be the only covenant, but in the middle there was this time where the law reigned. And see, while Moses was the mediator of the old covenant between God and the nation of Israel, Christ is now the mediator of the new covenant between God and the believers through his finished work of redemption. And then the last covenant we have listed here is the covenant of redemption, which is conditional. It says, without the covenant of redemption, the only other covenant in this list that could exist is the first one, the covenant of works. The covenant of redemption was established before creation and is a pact between the purses of the Trinity in which the Father sends the Son to do the work of redemption, the Son submits to the Father's will, and the Holy Spirit applies the benefits of the Son's accomplished work to believers. You see, God is in the business of making covenants. I don't know if you knew all those, or you could put all those into words, but the reality is God has been revealing since the beginning of time His plan for the redemption of humanity for His glory alone. That's what we believe, right? We're part of... The Protestant Reformation, for his glory alone, God is glorified through what he can do and what he has done in redeeming a fallen humanity. So this morning, you think about this, God stepped into the role of fulfilling the righteous requirements of the covenant on our behalf. So just as there was this promise of the Messiah, there's also this promise of righteousness, So if we know that Jesus is God himself and that Jesus is our righteousness and righteousness comes from the way that each partner in a covenant performs their agreed upon terms, then what does it mean to say the Lord is my righteousness? Well, I want to look a little bit at Romans 3, 38, because Paul writes something that I think makes a lot of sense here. He says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So wait a minute, Chris, why are you bringing justification in here? I thought we were talking about righteousness. Fair question. So justification, or dekio, means to render one righteous, or to declare or to pronounce one to be just or righteous. So this is the Greek word here. And this word, when he says justification, has everything to do with righteousness. But it isn't righteousness in and of itself. It is the judge's declaration of righteousness. And I want to take just a second to think about this. Who needs to determine whether we're righteous or not? Who? You can say it. God, right? So justification is important. We need the judge who's sitting on the throne to say, you are righteous. We need him to declare us righteous, which is what the word justification means. So let me read this again. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Meaning under this new covenant, this new thing that came in, Paul is telling him, you no longer are going to be justified by how you keep the law. You will be justified solely by faith. And that justification means you will only be rendered righteous or declared righteous by God Almighty through your faith in something, Through your faith in something. So that's the next question, right? Because it's a lot easier when I know what do I have to do in order to be righteous before God? What steps do I have to take? What do I have to do? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to serve? Do I have to pray? Do I have to read my Bible? Do I have to make converts? Sure, all those things are important, but none of them make you righteous. In fact, you can do all those things and still be very unrighteous. And Jesus warns against it, right? He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that day, they'll say what? Well, Lord, haven't we performed miracles in your name? Haven't we cast out demons? Haven't we told people about you? And they'll say, depart from me. I don't know you, workers of iniquity. Because all of our righteousness, if Isaiah is to be believed, is like filthy rags. They did all these things, but none of it amounted to much in the way of righteousness. It was just idle work for idle hands. Why? Because it was faith that justifies Faith, faith alone. And when I say faith, let me, let me put this in context. Faith isn't just belief. Faith is belief and it's trust and it's action all wrapped up into one word. You can't say you have faith in something and not act in it, that's a lack of faith. So I can either say, I believe that if I stepped off here, I'm gonna be able to take another step. The stage continues to go, or I can just do it, right? If I do it, I'm demonstrating faith. Every time you get into an automobile, And you expect to get to where you're going, you're demonstrating faith. Because you can't see the outcome, but you have faith. You don't say, I have faith in this automobile to get me where I'm going. I have faith in my ability to drive. I have faith in the other people on the road. I have faith in the weather. But you're demonstrating faith every time you get behind the wheel of a car. Faith is action. You can't separate it. It's not an intellectual thing. Although it begins... In the heart, in the mind of the believer, a faith, a righteous faith starts with the truth about who God is, and the conviction of that leads to action. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, Paul writes this, "...for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again." So I want to talk about what kind of faith saves, because I think that's important. you guys agree? Because we put our faith in a lot of stuff. But if we're justified by faith apart from works of the law, then we better know what this justifying faith is. So there's this part in this that starts with, for Christ's love compels, I would love to speak on that, we don't have time. But I do want to get to this next part that says, we are convinced. This statement's really important. Because we have been taught in Hebrews 11.1 that faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. See, we're convinced. We have faith. That's what he's saying, right? We're convinced. We have faith in this. What do we have faith in? We have faith that one died for all, so Jesus died for all, and therefore all died. He says we have to die to sin, right? We have to die to self. We have faith in that, in that he who died... in that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. So when I pledge my, a good conscience to the Lord in baptism, what I'm saying is I'm dying to self, and no longer do I live for me, but I live for him who died for me. And then he says this, and was raised again. We have to believe Jesus came back, right? If Jesus stayed in the grave, he may have been a good sacrifice, but there's no hope for eternal life. There's no hope for redemption. That's the faith that justifies, the faith that believes in the redemptive work of Christ. Christ lived in perfect obedience to the Mosaic law. So he became a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. And when Jesus died on that cross and was punished on our behalf for sin, and then he was buried and he came out of the grave, that we would believe on that, give our lives to him as Lord, And no longer will we live for ourselves. That's justifying faith. That's the faith that saves. That's the faith that declares one righteous. But how is that possible? See, that's the thing that gets to me. It's like, okay, I can take all that. I can accept all that. But how, if God is truly just, if God is truly just, how can this enter into God's presence? How can this enter into God's presence if God is truly just? So then I want to finish this passage in 2 Corinthians. It says this in verses uh, 18 through 19 and verse twenty. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, meaning not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation because God made him who had no sin To be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, this is where it all ties together. Jehovah Sidkenu finds perfect fulfillment in this. That God made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might become, what? The righteousness of God. So the Lord is my righteousness. This is it. This is where it all comes together in scripture. From the old to the new, God was planning and perfecting, and Paul is revealing here what happened. God made him who had no sin become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what happens in practical terms? This is Jesus now. On the cross, Jesus becomes this. Jesus becomes an anathema to God. Jesus becomes the obscenity of sin. Jesus becomes the brokenness of a fallen man, takes on every single transgression that has ever been committed, is being committed, and will be committed as if he was deserving of sin and punishment and wrath. And for those who are justified by faith, who walk by faith, believing we become this. See, it's not simply God cleaning you It's not God taking this really dirty canvas here and wiping it clean. It's God saying, here you are, you're a new creation in Christ. In Romans 6, he says what? You've been buried with Christ. The old man was crucified and you were raised a new creation. You are new in Christ. And every day his mercies are new. You are new in Christ. In fact, for the believer, he says in 1 John... If you confess your sins to him, he is just to forgive, and the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse all unrighteousness. God doesn't want to just clean up your mess. God gives you something new to start with. His righteousness, not yours. So when it says the Lord is my righteousness, this is the only merit by which we will enter the throne. Room of God. So let's give it up for God. He gave us a brand new, clean slate (laughs) righteousness. We could not have accomplished this. And I know I'm getting loud and excited, but I'm excited about it. Why? Because I'm unashamed of the gospel. Because this is the gospel, the power of God to save. God doesn't want you to clean up your own mess. You can't. And the more you try, the more sin you're going to have in your life. God does want you to do good work. But only in response to the new nature he's given you, the new clean slate he's given you, because of the grace for the love of Christ compels us. What is compelling your good works? Anything that makes God to be a debtor in your life is ungodly. God doesn't owe us anything. It is from the wellspring of life that's in us that all the good comes. So it is not us working but rather God working in us and through us to accomplish his goal. That's what it means that the Lord is my righteousness that God is the one doing the work and he always has been and always will be. And any time we take into our own hands at best that's what we're going to look like. That's not going to heaven. That's not going to heaven. And I want you to hear that today because I love you. People are going to hell because they refuse to accept that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. That through him alone, we can enter into the throne room of God's grace. But because God so loved the world, he gave us that opportunity. So what does that mean for us today? I don't know where you're at. So I can't tell you for you, but I can give some suggestions what it might mean for you today. Maybe you need to hear today that Jesus is Jehovah, that Jesus is God. That God Himself emptied himself and became and came to this broken, fallen world to save you, to save me. That God cares that much. That we don't have a high priest who's unacquainted with suffering, for he was tempted and suffered on every hand. God loves you that much and maybe you know that but maybe you need to be reminded that this morning because you're grumbling and complaining dwelling in the what-ifs and the whys you need to remember that God is for you right Peter will say this you're already receiving the goal of your faith which is the salvation of your soul in the present tense you're receiving it now do you really need anything else If you do, I would have to say that it's time to search your heart and say, if anything, if I need anything more than Jesus, I'm probably not right with God. And God can work that out, too. Or maybe today you need to learn what righteousness really meant, because it's a word we talk about, right? We say righteousness all the time. We sing about righteousness. We think about righteousness. But that righteousness is the result of fulfilling the terms and the vows of the covenant, And in learning that, you realize that you are incapable of being righteous on your own strength and in your own power. Because as Isaiah says, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So as we go to these last two closing questions, I want you to think about this. Maybe today you needed to learn about the type of faith that saves through justification. Faith in the facts that Jesus lived a perfect life. That he died as our substitute. And then after three days, he was raised from the grave. That's all it takes. And when I say faith, I mean faith. I don't mean anything other than that. We we belittle what faith really is. And I, I believe that you can't separate faith from action. So I'm not saying there isn't action involved. But I mean the only action that matters to God is action that's compelled by the love of Christ through our faith in what Jesus has accomplished. Because otherwise, it's just filthy rags. So faith is what saves us. Faith is what justifies us. And faith is something that's accompanied by action. I could say I have faith that I could walk if I stepped off the stage, or I could just step off the stage. I don't need to say it. If I have faith, I would do it. That's what faith really looks like. Or maybe today you need to hear that those who have surrendered their lives to Christ in baptism have been raised to a new life, and that we are this, the righteousness of God. This is you today. Can we give God a hand for that? We didn't accomplish this. God did this. This is you. And with that, we have the confidence, the confidence to come before God because God wants us in his presence. He doesn't need us. God is self-sufficient. He's all-sufficient. He doesn't need anything, yet he wants us. He wanted us so bad that he said, Look, I'm going to take care of this because I'm a just God, and I'm going to do it through killing and punishing my own son so that you can have this and enter the throne room. And that one day, when he returns, by his grace through faith, we will enter into his presence for eternity. This morning, wherever you are in this faith journey, I would love, we would love to walk beside you. That's what the body's for, right? We walk together. It's not walking apart from or looking down on. It's we need to walk step in step, bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice, mourning with those who mourn, to take that next step in faith. So come forward if you have a need. Or if you're not comfortable doing that, find somebody you trust. And please share with that today. I feel like if, if we're being honest, and, I, and I'm on this list too, we all need to take a next step in one of these things today as a result of what the Word of God says, not what Chris says. Because who cares what I have to say? The Lord is my righteousness, and the Lord is yours too. Will you bow with me? Dear Father, we, uh, we're unworthy of you, God. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. We don't deserve to even mention your name because we're broken and we're fallen. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in us as you work and will through your grace to help us become who you've already declared us to be and that is your righteousness. And as we increasingly look like Christ, that the world would see that and say, there's something different about those people and we want to be a part of that Because we see all this darkness around us and we see that light on a hill. And you said, therefore, go and make disciples. And Lord, I pray this morning that we, as your disciples, would be the people who accept the righteousness you give and reflect back to you and bring others to your name. We praise you, Lord, and we love you in Jesus' precious name, amen.